0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: Thank you for the invitation. It's been really exciting for me. And today, I, This talk is going to be about brains, and I'm not going to actually talk about primates or humans, but I'm going to come to some conclusions about humans and culture. Um, so this is a brain of a bottlenose dolphin, a back of a brain of a bottlenose dolphin, and this is a brain of a small marsupial. And you can see the neocortex is really large, and I'm going to talk about the neocortex today very specifically for a couple of reasons. One is that it's the part of the brain that's, um, that's changed most dramatically in mammals over time and in humans in particular, they have an extremely large neocortex. It's the part of the brain that's involved in cognition, language, um, and things like tool use. The the question that we're interested in addressing in my laboratory is is how the brain gets more more complex or how the neocortex gets more complex. So we know that early mammals had a neocortex that was very, very tiny and had a few cortical fields. And cortical fields are the functional units um, of of the neocortex. And we know that as brains um, evolved, and particularly primate brains, the neocortex became a really, really enormous cortical sheet uh, that, that now is proposed, humans are proposed to have hundreds of cortical fields. So the question is, how do you get from a very, very simple form to a very, very complicated form? But this, this, is a, this is a serious problem to address because these types of changes, certainly from early mammals, are 200 million, 200 million years of changes. And we can, we can even see the sorts of changes that have occurred in the human line over a six million year period. So how do you address these changes? And there are two ways that you can, you can get at this, this question of evolution. You can look at, you can, do, you can say, what has evolution produced? And the way we can understand what evolution has produced is we look at brains and bodies. We do a comparative approach. So I can look at a lot of different brains using a variety of different um, techniques, electrophysiological, anatomical, um, and I can say, what sorts of changes have come about? Um, The problem is evolutionism uh, is a moving picture, and the life of an individual is a moving picture. So anytime we we study an individual or a mammal, we're taking one snapshot of that moving picture of life and trying to figure it out. So what we do with a comparative analysis is we, we look at a lot of snapshots and try to put this moving picture back together. However... Well, well, these sort of comparative studies can tell us what evolution has produced. They don't tell us how phenotypic transformations occur. How do I get more cortical fields? How do I change connections of a cortex, which in turn changes behavior? Um, And this is where studies of development uh, come into place because the evolution of any aspect of the body, the brain, is actually the evolution of developmental mechanisms that give rise to that aspect of the phenotype. So my talk is gonna focus a little bit on this. Okay, so comparative analysis. This is many, many years of work. This is a cladogram. Um, And these are neocortices. And you're going to see these sort of cartoons throughout the talk. Um, This is a neocortex. These red and blue and yellow areas indicate cortical fields. And the most important thing to take away from this is that you can have common ancestors which we don't know about, humans, macaque monkeys, cats, squirrels. There is a a constellation of cortical fields that all species possess, even in the absence of use. And this is due to inheritance from a common ancestry. And it's also due to the way genes are deployed in development, but that's gonna be a different story. So there are similarities in brains. Even my brain is very similar to a mouse brain in some ways, but it's also very different. And here are some of the sorts of differences you're gonna see. This is a flattened view of the neocortex. This is the front of the brain. This is the top of the brain. This is a macaque monkey, and this is a mouse. And they're not drawn to scale. This would actually, this mouse neocortex would be a little tiny portion of the macaque neocortex. And what we can see is that there are changes in the size of the cortical sheet, There are changes in cortical field number. Um, There are changes in the relative size of cortical fields. There are changes in the connection patterns of of homologous cortical fields. And of course the question is, to what extent um, are these differences due to genes that are intrinsic to the developing neocortex. Have they changed in species over time? And they probably have. Genes associate with the development of the body because the body changes. We use the body differently, and you cannot think about the brain without thinking about the body. There's a middleman there, right? The brain is not embodied itself. It needs the body to give it provide all information about the world. Um, epigenetic influences, and by this I mean um, uh, sensory-driven dr- or environmental or context-driven changes um, to the brain and the body, or Is it some combination of these factors? Is any creature due to just one sort of thing, or is it some combination um, in different species over the the course of evolution? So I'm going to give you some examples of comparative work and changes in peripheral morphology that that give us some clue um, um, about what the answer to to that question is. So this is one of my very favorite examples on the planet. It's a ductile platypus, and this is a real animal. This is the bill, and what's really cool... (laughs) Yeah, and I had it, and the reason I'm also interested in the body is when I um, started working on different animals in Australia, I had to catch every single animal I worked on, and it gives you a really, really great appreciation for the body and how important it is because they're hard to catch. Um, anyway, I digress. Um, so what's really cool about the platypus is that it has mechanosensory receptors that are exquisitely sensitive to, to touch. Um, interdigitate it with um, electrosensory receptors on its bill. And when it does anything important, capture um, prey items, um, mate, it closes its eyes, its ears, and its nose, so all it has is a bill. And if you look at its neocortex using electrophysiological recording techniques, this is the um, front of the brain, this is the the top of the brain, this is the representation of the bill on the cortical sheet. There are a number of cortical fields. So within the somatosensory cortex, it takes up about 90% of the entire representation of the somatosensory cortex. And if you look at the cortex itself, it takes up about 75% of the entire cortical sheet. This animal is one big, huge bill. Um, <laughs> and it's hard to imagine. This is called cortical magnification. And the, the question is, is this due to genes intrinsic to the neocortex that have made this cortex one big, huge bill, changes to the body? It has to be, to some extent, due to changes in the body, the environment, and how the, 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 the animal uses the um, body and the environment. And I, I gave you the example of the platypus because it's, it's a, an extraordinary example of cortical magnification, but we must appreciate that we see this across the board in a lot of species, including humans. If you look at the um, evolution of the supralaryngeal tract and the specializations of this body morphology, we have an expanded expanded representation in somatosensory cortex, motor cortex, premotor cortex um, of this specialized structure, which we call Broca's area. So they are following the same rules of evolution as other species. I'm gonna sh- uh, uh, switch really rapidly to experimental manipulations in proof morphology. So you say, okay, to what extent is the, the ratio of incoming sensory inputs to the developing neocortex um, determining the functional organization of the neocortex? And for this, we use little short-tailed opossums. They are models of early blindness. Um, we bilaterally nucleate or remove the eyes when these animals are embryos. So it's just like basically a little layer of skin. We let them grow up and we look at the connections, we look at um, the functional organization of their brain and what we see is that here's visual cortex in this animal, this is the front of the brain and this is the top of the brain, and all of what would normally be visual cortex, which is in blue here, is now processing inputs from the somatosensory and auditory system. So we've totally functionally changed the reorganization of this neocortex. And if we look at the connections, these are connections, this is, these are visual areas here in blue, primary visual cortex, and it's getting input from other visual structures. These are auditory structures in yellow and somatosensory structures in red. And what we see in our bilateral nucleates is that now the connections of the brain have changed. We've done nothing to the neocortex itself, not one thing. We've simply removed all visual input really early in development. And what we see is this functional takeover and connectional takeover of the developing brain. And if we look at what that what that region is representing, which would normally be visual, it's representing the head and the vibrissi. We basically, I wanna say we have made a platypus, right? So something like 80% of the neocortex is now processing inputs from this stuff, from the vibrissi and the snout and the face. and, we did, and of course, it's great to have a big brain and, and, and transform the neocortex, but you have to ask yourself, what does this mean for behavior, which is the target of selection? And so we had trained discrimination tasks and natural behavior, and I wanted to show you the natural behavior because it's really cool. Um, these animals, they end up becoming uh, super tactile animals. They do really, really well with tactile discrimination tasks. This is a ladder rung task where the animal starts on, at one end of this ladder and moves to the other end, and you train him to walk on evenly spaced rungs. And then what you do is... You then space the rungs unevenly, and you have him do this task again. And I'm going to show you some movies of this. This is a normal animal. This is a bilateral nucleate. And this is really pretty beautiful. So here's what a normal animal looks like. And you can score them based on when their legs fall through and how well they do. You'll you'll see this. And, you, you know, his legs falling through. Oops. 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 You know. He was trained, but this is now a novel task. Here's the bilateral nucleate. No no eyes whatsoever, right? So it's never had any access to visual input ever. And so this is what the bilateral nucleate looks like on this novel task. Look at this, bam. Okay, this is good. Okay, so we propose that because the whiskers are so important and you have this huge representation of the whiskers now, we trim the whiskers. I know, I know, I know. They grew back, they grew back, okay? But check this out, this is so cool. Look, this is the same animal with his whiskers trimmed. And here's what happens. Right? So this, this is really cool because you were showing this enormous brain change and behavior change and that, that the, the two coincide. Um, and just to end this little tiny portion of it. So blindness is not an absence of light because this animal has a fun- functional respecification, changes in cortical and subcortical ch- connections, um, a, a really big magnification of its vibrisis. So um, your, its entire nervous system has been kind of rewired and reorganized based on this lack of sensory input. But that's pretty that's, a, that's sort of like taking a sledgehammer to the system. Let me show you something a little more subtle. This is natural differences in rearing conditions, uh, cultural transmission of rearing style. Um, and these are voles. Voles are biparental. they both, both parents rear their young. And we can measure differences in total tactile contact of the young. We, we look at high contact parents and low contact parents. And important to remember is that high contact offspring show differences in behavior. High contact offspring become high contact parents. And if you cross foster them on the day of birth, you take low contact parents and put them with high contact parents, they become high contact parents. So this is a social transmission of a rearing style. Um, And if we look at the connections of their somatosensory cortex, particularly in the regions of the body that are being touched, we see that connections are mostly the same. This this is an injection site and these are connections to it, but we also see differences in connections. And remember, this is pretty subtle and differences in connections of frontal cortex as well. So what factors contribute to the phenotype? So that, so I'm just showing you a much more subtle example um, um, of, of, of the role of sensory input in, in shaping the brain and shaping connectivity. Well, genes definitely contribute to um, cortical sheet size, cortical field size, cortical connections, peripheral morphology. And cellular mechanisms involved in plasticity may be genetically specified, which allows the environment to impact some of these same things. I can change cortical field size, cortical connectivity, peripheral morphology, which I showed in these experiments. And I've given you examples from the Bill of the Platypus, and I suggest that the same thing is occurring in humans. But what about things like social learning, language, and culture? Um, I would suggest that the best way to think about these as these are simply complex patterns of physical stimuli that are impinging on the developing nervous system. Mother's love is temperature, touch, cadence of a voice, nothing more. And this can impact how the brain wires itself. Um, uh, it can impact size of cortical fields and connections of cortical fields. So I'm going to end a little bit with this. This is a sort of a human evolution, um, not quite a cladogram. And on the bottom is environment and social context, and on the top I had it's sort of truncated here um, -- is, is meant to be sort of morphology or genes. In modern hand is proposed to have been around this for about 700,000 years. But what's really pretty fascinating is that until recently, we were using stone tools, so we had, the, and big brains happened way back here, right? So we had the big brain, we had the modern hand, but we were not doing what we're doing with the modern hand. And if you believe that all behavior is generated by the brain, and I believe that all behavior is generated by the brain, then the brain must have changed. And if the brain didn't change by changes in DNA sequence, it must have changed by activity-dependent mechanisms and or culture, and so, you know, it's hard to believe that the Industrial Revolution was less than 300 years ago. And if you look, we've actually changed the scape of this planet. And now we have daily and prolonged interactions with computers and machines and tools, really sophisticated tools. And I'll end by saying, we are common and creatures constructed by genes, bodies, behaviors, and environmental context. And I think, you know, you can look for the, the genes that are dis- distinguishing humans. I think you're going to find only a few, maybe some involved in expansion of the neocortex. But humans have evolved an extraordinary capacity to construct our neocortex um, over the course of a prolonged infancy and childhood, allowing for rapid phenotypic change, even within a single generation. I would say that if Leah Krubitz were born 30 years ago or 100 years ago or 300,000 years ago, I wouldn't be Leah Krubitz or, you know, like hitting a rock or using a spear. I would be a different brain. Um, we have a remarkable fluid brain-body interface with the environment such that tools and machines can extend our embodiment and our, our peripersonal space and expand the loop between our brains, our bodies, and the world. And I think this has made us unique bio-hybrid creatures whose brains adapt and bootstrap themselves with the technologies that we give rise to and, for better or worse, with whom our futures are incre- increasingly entwined. Okay, Thank you.
0: Many anthropologists once thought humans evolved in Europe and Asia around 40 to 50,000 years ago. We now know Homo sapiens evolved in Africa between more, more than 100 to 300,000 years ago. And Yet, evidence showing these earlier humans behaved in similar ways to recent humans continues to surprise us. But should it? Here's an example. Several weeks, weeks ago, there was an article published in Nature, an abstract drawing from the 73,000-year-old levels at Blombos Cave in South Africa. Now, this is an important discovery, and it's published in one of the world's foremost and prestigious scientific journals. But abstract drawings are human cultural universals. You're looking at some of them right now. Everyone makes them. Shouldn't we expect that humans who lived in South Africa 73,000 years ago made abstract drawings too? Were early humans... Not behaviorally modern humans? Were they they these primitive humans that anthropologists have been looking for and not finding for more than two centuries? I think we have to ask what is behavioral modernity and take a close look at it? It's an inferred quality based on unexpected archaeological discoveries, art, symbols, carved bone tools, and, and similar things, rather than things predicted from prior evolutionary theory before the excavation started. Modernity claims come first. Supporting evidence, arguments, and theoretical justifications are developed after the fact. This is not a good way to do science, and it is a demonstrably poor way to do justice, because long ago, people in Salem, Massachusetts, used the same approach to identify witches. (laughs) Witchcraft accusations came first. Evidence was then gathered, and theories developed after the fact. More than 200 people were accused, dozens jailed, 19 hanged, and one tortured to death. And yet, Massachusetts exonerated most accused and convicted witches 17 years later, in 1703. Why should we expect our search for prehistoric, behaviorally modern humans to be any more successful and enduring than Salem's search for witches? I don't think we should. So what's wrong with behavioral modernity? First off, it's anti-evolutionary. It assumes all humans evolve convergently, towards the same end, and regardless of divergent selective pressures. Secondly, it's a metaphor, rather than a measurable property of the evidence, and a metaphor that archaeologists choose selectively. It doesn't predict. All its interpretations are made after the fact. I think it's better to focus, and I'll propose, it's better to focus of behavioral complexity instead. With behavioral maturity, different lightning bolts will all produce the same kinds of stone tools. Don't flint nap outdoors during a lightning storm. With behavioral complexity, different causes beget different results. So what is behavioral complexity? Well, key features of complex phenomena include multiple parts that interact with one another systematically. Different inputs create different outputs. And historical and geographic variation among inputs creates complexly patterned variability among the outputs. That's a little systems, too much systems theory. Here's a practical example. Folk art is a complex phenomenon in which artists, cultures, materials, and markets interact dynamically with one another. If you think folk art is simple, do please join us in Santa Fe, New Mexico, for the International Folk Art Festival. It happens each July. Handcrafted artifacts vary historically and geographically in complexly patterned ways. So how complex was early human stoneworking? Today, stoneworking or making stone tools is a handicraft, a full cart, of which I'm a pr- practitioner. A reasonable source of, it's also a reasonable source of hypotheses about prehistoric, prehistoric stoneworking because it's familiar. We can observe it. If early Homo sapiens had similar capacities for behavioral variability, excuse me, for, comp- for behavioral complexity to ours and different ones from earlier hominins, then their first appearances in the fossil record should coincide with onsets of complexly patterned stone tool variability. Okay, that's a prediction. It d- does it? Well, indeed it does. After 100 to 300,000 years ago, Homo sapiens' first appearances everywhere coincide with increasingly complex and patterned stone tool variability. So, what is complexly patterned stone tool variability? I think this slide, I hope this slide captures it well. And to make my point, I've stripped away all the hints you would have to the origins of these artifacts from their raw materials and substituted them with drawings. The objects in blue here date to more than 300,000 years ago and their artifact designs, their shapes, their morphology, their patterns of modification only weakly indicate geographic origin and, and their age, if they do so at all. Now, in the past, I've ha- offered to have a contest and offered a $20 bill to anybody who can guess where the object, the te- teardrop-shaped object comes from, but I'm told that uh, that would be improper. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Now, less than 100,000 years ago, artifact designs indicate age and geographic origin with increasing precision. The objects outlined in red are a bit older. They're closer to around 100,000 years ago. If you were to guess their ages, you'd probably come within 10,000 years, maybe 100,000 years. But the objects in black, the objects in black are more recent. They're younger than 40,000 years. And with some of them, we can narrow down their occurrence to 2,000 years. The, the object, uh, let's see, one, one, two, three, four, fourth from, from the, the, uh, the right there, the, one with a hollow sort of base. That, that's an artifact found here in North America, but from the Mississippi River to the Rocky Mountains and up to the Great Plains over the course of about two centuries. Excuse me, 2,000 years. <clears throat> what do stone tools teach us? First off, stone tools are indestructible evidence about mind-technology relationships. This, this evidence shows complex mind-technology relationships were in place among early humans at least 100 to 300,000 years ago. Increasingly complex stone tool and other artifact variability since 100,000 years ago suggests mind-technology relationships changed during the course of human evolution. So if we're trying to discover the influence of the mind on technology and technology on the mind, we need to remember we're shooting at a moving target. So, why? These are the fun questions. Why does stone tool variability become increasingly complex and patterned? Tools can be evolutionary advantageous, but they come with costs few other animals tolerate. Only other primates occasionally use tools, but only Homo sapiens are obligatory tool users. Obligatory tool use is irreversible. Even the best survival experts require tools. How many of you guys will fess up to seeing this show, Naked and Afraid? Come on. I, I, I just, you've seen this. Some of you, I know at least one other of you in the audience has been, like me, recruited to, to participate in it. I don't want to treat my students to pictures of, a, of me running around without clothes. They couldn't get insurance for this program unless they equipped the contestants with, with tools. It's, it wouldn't be called Naked and Afraid. It would be called Naked and Dead. <laughs> okay. Now, as I say... It's irreversible. We can't go back. More tool use increases cultural differences' potential influence on tool making strategies. I like to call this the know-you're-doing-it-wrong effect. So, what do we know, what do we not know, and what do we want to know? We know obligatory tool use is intrinsically complex and variable, and these are quantities we can measure using the stone tool evidence. We do not know. Whether obligatory tool use was a uniquely derived characteristic of Homo sapiens behavior or one shared by other hominins now extinct, such as Denisovans and Neanderthal, perhaps we find find ourselves in a a happy spot where we have new research questions. You always want to come up with new research questions; you don't want to just hang up your spurs and, and, uh, and go do something else. How did obligatory tool use change the human mind from earlier primate and hominin conditions? And how do we detect obligatory tool use? Now, some of my colleagues might say, and I'm not referring to anyone in the room, some of my colleagues might say, we have an arsenal of of ways of measuring stone tools and quantifying their variability that we've been using for for 200 years. But archaeologists who formulated those measurements 200 years ago weren't thinking about obligatory tool use. So we're in a situation where we have a, a, a toolbox full of hammers and chisels, and we're setting forth to change the battery on an iPhone. So I don't think the existing tools archaeologists use to characterize the stone tool record are necessarily unhelpful, but we have to prove that value.
2: Thank you. I'd like to thank uh, Tim and Pat for inviting me to this uh, very interesting symposium, and of course, the entire CARTA organization. Language co-evolved with the human brain throughout evolution of Homo sapiens. Writing, on the other hand, which is actually what my topic is, is a relatively new technology that was invented by humans to translate spoken language into a visual form for the purpose of transmitting verbal communication broadly to many people over large distances and time. As such, reading and writing can be considered the first social media. Reading is an example of what's called neuronal recycling, the recruitment of previously evolved neural circuits to accomplish cultural innovations. It's important to point out that while language develops naturally in most humans based on exposure rather than explicit instruction, reading and writing require painstaking instruction and years of practice to reach proficiency. This slide shows the typical reading brain network with its key components as established initially in an older view by studies of patients with acquired brain lesions. And more recently, using modern brain imaging technologies. We have a lot more information. This talk will trace the history of the invention of writing, how English writing developed and ended up with such a cockeyed spelling system which leads in many cases to dyslexia, and discuss how modern technologies are impacting reading and writing today. I'd like to begin with a brief overview of the history of the invention of writing. Writing is the physical manifestation of a spoken language. It's thought that human beings developed spoken language about 35,000 B.C., as evidenced by, wow, yeah, by cave paintings from the period of Cro-Magnon Man. Writing numbers for the purpose of record keeping began long before writing of language. Written language doesn't emerge until the invention in Sumer in southern Mesopotamia around 3500 BC. This writing system is known as cuneiform writing. It's generally agreed that true writing of language was independently conceived and developed by at least two ancient civilizations and possibly more in Sumer and also in Mesoamerica by the Maya in 500 to 300 BC. Writing systems also arose in Egypt around 3100 BC and China around 1200 BC. But historians debate whether these writing systems were developed completely independently of Sumerian writing or whether either or both were inspired by Sumerian writing by a process of cultural diffusion. The Sumerian cuneiform writing system was in use for more than three millennia through several stages of development as can be seen on this slide by looking at the transformation of the sign for head, sag, beginning with pictograms in 3000 BC. Ultimately, it was completely replaced by alphabetic writing in the general sense. In the course of the Roman era, there are no cuneiform writing systems in use today. While the development of Phoenician alphabet is often attributed to, of the phonetic alphabet, is also often contributed to the Phoenicians, they didn't actually invent it or create it. Rather, they imported it piecemeal from Egypt and Crete and took it to every city on the Mediterranean. By the time of Homer, the Greeks were taking over the Phoenician or allied Aramaic alphabetic writing and were calling it by the Semitic names of the first two letters, Alpha and Beta. The Latin alphabet was established by the 7th century B.C. Before the invention of the printing press in Europe around 1455, all books were handwritten and usually highly decorated. Until about the 12th century, the most elaborate and beautiful illuminations were devoted to religious works and most manuscripts were produced in monasteries. During the Middle Ages, the Latin alphabet was used extensively for writing in Europe. With the age of colonialism and Christian evangelism, the Latin script spread widely well beyond Europe. I'd now like to change the focus to the history of English writing and explain how English writing ended up with such a cockeyed spelling system, which leads in many cases to dyslexia. The English language itself is a compilation of several different languages, mostly Anglo-Saxon, French, and and Latin, because England just kept getting invaded by people who spoke different languages. The only thing we have in English up until about 1400 are called patois. They're a clumsy peasant language without any standardized writing system. There wasn't even a vocabulary to carry on business in English. It was all done in French or Latin. However, when King Henry V took the throne of England in 1412, he had plans to invade France, so speaking French wasn't going to work. He realized that if he wanted to get support from the common people, they would have to change the language of parliament and business from French to English. At this time, the only people who could write at all in England were just a handful of men called chancery scribes who wrote by hand and almost exclusively in Latin. Latin has a transparent one-to-one correspondence between the number of discrete sounds— called phonemes in spoken Latin and how they're mapped by the letters in the alphabet. As such, learning to read Latin's a piece of cake. All you have to do is learn the single letter that goes with each phoneme in Latin and then just pronounce them in order to produce words. King Henry V directed his chancery scribes to create a written version of English so that he could communicate more broadly with his subjects. However, there was little or no instruction as to how they were supposed to do this. The problem they faced was that the written Latin alphabet was designed to represent one-on-one each of the 23 phonemes in spoken Latin. It was never fit well for English, which has 44 phonemes. For example, Latin didn't have a sh, th, or ch sound, so with only 23 Latin letters, there was no letter to represent these and many of the other 44 English phonemes. Faced with this problem the Chancery Scribes just apparently made up multi-letter combinations to represent these single phonemes. So for example on this slide um, you could see that the letter string T-H-E pronounced phonetically should be T-H-E and S-H-E So, as many children are told, just say those and blend them together quickly, and what do you get? (laughs) In case you ever wondered how we ended up with the non-transparent mapping from spoken to written English that leads so many children and people learning English as a second language to struggle to learn to read and spell, it all began here in the 15th century. Nearly 600 years before Gutenberg, Chinese monks were setting ink to paper using a method known as block printing. What really set Gutenberg's technology apart from the Chinese was the development of a press that could mechanize the transfer of ink from movable type to paper. For the first time in history, books could be mass produced. Gutenberg's first major work In 1454 was a 42-line Gutenberg Bible, printed in Latin. With the invention of the printing press, printing soon became the first means of mass communication, really the first social media. It poured more knowledge in the hands of more people faster and more cheaply than ever before. As a result, reading and writing, which up until that time was really something done by a very, very small number of people, spread widely and rapidly. Caxton brought the first printing press from Bruges to London in 1476 for the Canterbury Tales. With the advent of the printing press, the complex and often cockeyed spelling patterns for English that remain to this day were solidified giving rise to generation after generation of children and adults who struggle to learn to read and write, particularly in English. Let me acknowledge here that I'm indebted to a wonderful website which I highly recommend to you called childrenofthecode.org. The website's creator, David Bolton, gave much of the information by interviewing scientists and anthropologists for many years. And I've synthesized a lot of that for this talk. I highly recommend that you explore this website for additional information on this topic of reading and writing, the history of reading and writing, and especially dyslexia. I quote from David Bolton. There weren't any cognitive scientists or neuroscientists or psychologists or even child development experts involved in creating the English writing system. There wasn't any concern for hundreds of millions of children who would struggle since this code was created in the 15th century. There were just a small number of chancery scribes doing their very best to shove a technology created for Latin into a a language it was never designed for. Those who eventually do manage to overcome the confusion and learn how to break the code, to become phonologically aware, are able to use the areas of the brain that reading has recycled from speech and language, these areas here. Those who cannot break this code become dyslexic. According to the United States Department of Education in 2017, more than 60% of U.S. K-12 school children are reading below proficiency, and more than 70% writing below the level of proficiency for that grade level. Let these stunning numbers sink in. Reading is the skill that matters most to success in school, and children who fall behind in reading are in great academic danger. But it's not just the lack of reading skills that most endanger these children. It's the collateral damage. It's their mind shame that fates their future as seen on this video clip being shown with permission of Children of the Code.
1: My teacher asked me to come into the
2: front of the class and read a book, and everybody was just staring at me, and I got real nervous because I didn't want to mess up or anything.
1: And then when I started reading, I started messing up, and I just couldn't help it, and everybody started laughing at me and
2: stuff. So
0: Like the teacher would ask me to read something, and I would read it, and I'd get a wrong word, or I'd go too slow, and they'd make fun of me.
2: I kept messing up on the words, and people kept laughing
0: at me. They said that you don't know how to read. I bet you won't be able to uh, how to read when you grow up.
2: They always laugh at me if I get twisted up with words. It makes makes my heart drop, because it seems like they're not my friend no more. The collateral damage caused by literacy problems in the United States alone is immense. 75% to 80% of students identified as learning disabled have their basic deficits in language and reading. Academic success, as defined by high school graduation, can be predicted by knowing someone's reading skill at the end of third grade. 56% of students with learning disabilities will drop out of school and be arrested. 60% of adolescents in treatment for substance abuse have learning disabilities. 50% of females with learning disabilities will be mothers, many of them single mothers, within three to five years of leaving high school. Learning disabilities and substance abuse are the number one reason for keeping welfare recipients from becoming and remaining employed. Now I'm gonna turn to discussing how modern technologies are impacting reading and writing today. Least we forget, the human brain is an exquisitely adaptable machine. Even though written language did not evolve like spoken language did over tens of millions of years ago, since the invention of writing and reading, the remarkable neuroplasticity of the human brain has supported the rapid formation of a highly elaborate literacy brain circuit. Literacy is a unique epigenetic achievement that changes what we perceive, how we think, and how we feel, that is, who we are. I think it's fair to say that reading and writing, perhaps more than any other technology, have had the greatest impact on the advancement of homo sapien brain and mind. As we gain proficiency in reading and writing, the continual use of our literacy brain circuit feeds back, elaborates, and strengthens itself. But just as this brain circuit developed very rapidly in evolutionary terms, or perhaps because it was so rapid, this circuit is also more vulnerable to change, if not continuously reinforced by experience and use. Only if we continuously work to develop and use the elaborated, analytical, inferential, and empathetic skills that have been developed by literacy Will the neural networks underlying these skills continue to sustain our, co- our capacity to be attentive, thoughtful, critical thinkers, rather than passive consumers of facts, real or fake? Despite alphabetic writing not changing much since the invention of the, prim- of the printing press in the 15th century, Modern technologies, particularly social media technologies, are having a very rapid and profound effect on writing practices in the 21st century. Interestingly, many of these new technologies are making less use of alphabetic writing systems and more use, once again, of pictographs, as can be seen here, comparing the Egyptian hieroglyphics of 3100 B.C. to a thank you note I recently received from my niece that says dinner was awesome. It was a gift. Thanks. (laughs) And another example, a Chinese pictograph for medical marijuana, originally from 10,000 years ago, and a clip art symbol for medical marijuana from 2017. Since the 15th century, despite many changes in spoken English from Old English to Middle English to Late Modern, Early Modern and Late Modern English. Like here it says, then she went to speak the whatever English tongue. English has u- written English has used the same 26 letters to represent the 44 sounds of English until now. The bottom line reads, then she went to speak this digital age. English tongue. <laughs> Neuroscientists like me, who specialize in reading, are frequently asked these days, how might these rapid technological changes in reading and writing affect the human mind? My colleague, Dr. Marianne Wolf, focuses on exactly this question in her new book, Reader, Come Home. I'd like to close with some of the profound insights from this timely book. As we move from a literary and word-based culture into a far faster-paced, digital and screen-based one, we face an existential dilemma in this new millennium. There are many things that would be lost if we slowly lose the cognitive patience to immense ourselves, immerse ourselves in the worlds that are created by books and the lives, feelings, thoughts, and insights of the characters who inhabit them. In a culture that increasingly rewards immediacy, ease, and efficiency, the demanding time and effort involved in what Dr. Wolf refers to as deep reading make it an increasingly embattled entity. In closing, I ask each of you to consider this question. Will the very plasticity of the literate brain as it begins to reflect the characteristics of digital media that we and our children are increasingly immersing ourselves in Precipitate the atrophy of our most essential thought processes, sustained attention, critical analysis, empathy and reflection, and indeed wisdom, to the detriment of democratic societies that critically depend on these, the most essential characteristics of the enlightened, literate individual. Thank you.